Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. Today we are going to discuss the extremely pressing question of whether the world is a simulation, using a lot of words and for a long time. I know what you may be already thinking. First, as my physicist roommate said just today when I mentioned this podcast, if there's no way to tell whether we are in a simulation or not, why care to talk about it? Second, even if there's something to be said about it, hasn't it been said enough already? The simulation theory stuff has been discussed a lot these days, in popular conversations, books, and shows like Westworld and Black Mirror. Elon Musk said that he is so tired of being asked about it that he has banned it from all hot tub conversations. So what might we possibly have to add that's new? Well, in my view, there's a lot that's missing from the popular conversation so far. The way I see it, the simulation theory is in fact a very ancient notion from way before modern technology. And I see a whole web of other ideas surrounding it, starting from some mysterious experiences I myself had when I was younger, to later psychedelic experiences, and how they may ultimately connect to ideas from Eastern religions, such as the Hindu concept of Maya, the illusory world. So this podcast is my attempt at laying out this web of ideas as fully as possible, and hopefully you'll hear about much more than the usual popular discussion of the simulation theory. Instead of a long, narcissistic monologue, this is a conversation with my roommate Benam Arzaghi. Benam and I met at a 10-day silent meditation retreat in Texas, and he eventually moved to our house. He's a gifted classical violinist and composer, makes really great modern music as well, including the intro music for this podcast, and is a graduate in computer science and physics. We share a lot of interests, including in science, technology, spirituality, and psychedelics, which of course this podcast topic is all about. In this first episode, I'm going to share the factors that motivated me to have this discussion. First, we discuss the merits of an argument, recently popularized by Elon Musk, that our reality is almost definitely a simulation. Second, I bring up two independent, unfounded claims by two of my experienced meditator friends that reality is not what it seems to be and that certain experiences during meditation were far truer than any other experience. In this context, Benam and I will discuss whether the only truth about the nature of reality is the material world deduced by the scientific method. Third, another friend of mine told me an intriguing experience he had during an ayahuasca ceremony. He said he witnessed reality deconstructing itself into layers of mindless, mechanistic automata, and then the one mind that created it all revealed to him that it did so out of boredom and loneliness. I will also talk about my own first LSD trip, which made the serious pursuits of our life appear like a game. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider supporting me by donating dye or ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L 
www.eth. So um, I want to make this thing as much like a regular conversation as possible because it's like it's weird enough already. Cool. And then if you're like self-conscious about uh, who's listening to this and how do they feel about it, it's just going to be shit. <laughs> so <laughs> it's already kind of shit. <laughs> We're talking about... Okay, so we are talking about today. Uh, today we are talking about <laughs> if... The, the world and the universe and life is or is not uh, a simulation. And um, Ben, I'm here very generous, generously agreed to be my rubber duck. And I think I find that an interesting concept in and of itself. I was explaining this to a colleague of mine. Is he asked me, what do you mean, like rubber duck? So can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Um, so as I understand it, this is a um common not necessarily practice but notion in um computer programming circles that if you are trying to debug something that's not currently working you um like verbalize and explain to a hypothetical rubber rubber duck exactly mm -hmm. what your program does with the idea that by being forced to communicate an idea, you'll understand it better. Yeah. And it'll be more clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So when I started this idea of a, a podcast with a series of episodes, I originally just had in mind that every episode would just be me talking to a guest about things that they want to talk about. But eventually, I kind of realized that there are ideas that I just want to talk about, like myself, things that I've been thinking about. And for a long time, I had a blog in which I would just like blog about stuff. And slowly, I've fallen out of the habit of blogging. But then I thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting excited about this podcast. This might be my new way to blog, where I kind of write down the gist of an idea and I just have these monologues. But And the idea of whether or not uh, the world or life is a simulation is one of those ideas that I had that I wanted to do a monologue podcast episode on. But then downstairs when he said, hey, do you want to do like a rubber duck? I immediately realized it would be a much better idea because, well, A, it's just if you just have an intelligent person asking intelligent questions, then to the audience of the podcast, it, they take on the role of the audience. So like, okay, so what does, what does this mean? Whatever. So they kind of take the role of guiding the, the audience mm -hmm. through, um, through uh, the, the idea. And so um, I guess that's something that I would like you to kind of keep in mind, not just be Benam, but be like a more a like, generalized, like a generalized. I mean, I know that it's kind of hard for you to do that because we will be talking about topics that you have independently thought about as well. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, if you get the sense that this is a statement that I accept, but I know that most people won't, mm -hmm. then just ask that question. Like, why do you, even though you know the answer to it. Okay. And so we'll kind of go through it uh, together. So that's the first role that you play, which mm -hmm. is you play sort of the role of the proxy of the audience member. And the second role that you play that is especially useful, I was thinking about this earlier today, is that 
the ideas that I will talk about today are a lot of them are very recent developments in the way that I see the world or feel about the world. So the thoughts are not very well formed. Mm -hmm. So for me to sit down and write a monologue would be kind of dishonest because I would be forcing some thoughts to crystallize that haven't crystallized yet. And the only thing that can help those thoughts really honestly crystallize is more experiences in my life or talking them out with another person who has had different experiences than me. Mm -hmm. But just sitting in my armchair and forcing them into this crystallized format would be kind of misleading and would go in directions that might not be very honest just because I'm... So in that sense, the rubber ducky thing is useful when we are talking about this idea because you will see that there are like half-baked, half-formed thoughts. And in the course of the conversation, the uncertainties will come out and maybe some ideas will... Um, um, we'll get like, I'll get like better feedback and opinion from you and we kind of just like ramble about. So there were, there are things that we will ramble about okay. today, uh, which is fine. Okay. So, so, so thanks for being my rubber duck. Um, um, and, um, okay. So we are ready to begin at the very beginning. I wanted to kind of use, uh, a, a very popular hook to start ourselves off on this journey of, uh, thinking about whether or not the world is a simulation. Recently, among other people, Elon Musk floated the idea that mm -hmm. the world might be a simulation. I have objections to not the statement, but the art line of reasoning that he uses to reach the conclusion. So I'm going to give you his line of reasoning, and then I'm going to ask you if you see any fallacies in it. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a video of someone like asking him, oh, okay, so can you repeat your idea of you know, the, the, the world being a simulation. And he got up and he was kind of tired about it. Because he said, okay, so this is one topic that is now banned from all uh, <laughs> hot tubs. Do you, do you know this? I've he said, okay, this. so this is a banned topic from all hot tubs. I don't really know why we should keep asking Elon Musk about whether or not the world is a simulation. I mean, let the guy do his do the rest of his job. But anyway, so he, he still kind of gave the answer. He said, okay, step one, step two, step three of logic. And then at the end, he said, I know that it kind sounds kind of wacky, but can you point out any, any discrepancy in any of those steps? And I could, but it's not like in, none of those steps were individually. I, okay, I'm giving you clues. Let's just give you his um, argument. His argument was, you can see already that human beings are kind of obsessed with virtual reality and they're building games and they're building immersive games now. They're building simulations in which they're voluntarily immersing themselves. And every year that passes, the simulations become more and more high resolution, more and more lifelike. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are kind of obsessed with this now that every company is trying to make these simulations as lifelike as possible for various reasons. Um, so we can imagine that if this trend continues, that there will be many, many lifelike simulations in the future and because the number of simulations will uh, will hugely outnumber the one reality that we have, then using the laws of probability, it is highly likely that we are already in such a simulation mm -hmm. and that this is not real life. Because if there are like a thousand lifelike simulations, but only one reality, then the odds that what you find yourselves uh, in uh, is much higher that is a simulation than than reality, um, and he said, "Okay, so now tell me why. What part of that 
doesn't make sense you do have well yeah. so so my understanding about also just be careful yeah, not to actually it. touch the tripod because that like makes a deafening sound all right it's very hard to remove um, yeah. so um my understanding is that he is drawing on um the philosopher nick bostrom's work nick mm. bostrom being the same guy who wrote the book on artificial intelligence i think it was called super intelligence yeah. that got elon musk um Bill Gates and a bunch of other people. Sorry, not Bill Gates. I think it was Stephen Hawking. Quite a few people in like around 2014, 2015 really worried about AI. That was like, so Nick Bostrom's like a philosopher at Oxford and, and what he does is philosophizes about these things. And so yeah. so he has his his hypothetical arguments for why we should be super worried about AI. And then he's also the guy who put forth um, sort of a, a quasi probabilistic interpretation of whether or not we would be in some sort of simulation. And so I think, yeah. I think, Perhaps Musk is biased because he found Bostrom's work on AI well-reasoned and compelling. Mm. And so he might have just dipped his toe in some of his other work, which may or may be less or more interesting. Um, Okay, so flaws in the reasoning that we seem to have a preoccupation with virtual realities Mm. that become have been becoming more and more lifelike. In recent years, and probably not linearly, right? It's like kind of exponential. So, oh, yeah. just as with any yeah rest of technological. So and so, if if that's the case, then at some point we might be able to do something that's virtually equivalent to this. And then, if mm. we can do that, then inside that simulation, they'd be able to do the same thing with enough time, and then et cetera, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, I guess the thing that that confuses me about that is that there would be no um, uh, like deterioration as you get levels into the simulation in terms of how with with the like what yeah. degree of fidelity you can simulate right because yeah. like if, if i'm inside a simulation that's mm-hmm. inside a simulation like surely you can only have a fraction of the processing power because you're, you're working within the constraints of yeah like a sub but that deterioration may not be um, um perceptible might... right because you may oh, we'll come to this later the person that you are, imagine in real life, if for the moment, let's say that this is in simulation, the person that you are in real life may be an organism that's capable of uh, receiving and processing much richer information, but you voluntarily suspend mm-hmm. that identity and that memory and you come into the simulation, maybe this is much lower resolution, but you don't remember mm-hmm. how rich real life used to be. Yeah. And um, so then you would not notice the deterioration so that's that, that's like one mm-hmm. yeah I, but I guess like then the other question is like if 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 it's simulations all the way down mm. um even if we were to to come out of this one and yeah. backwards up one level yeah it's you know that's yeah. not baseline either right like if yeah, if yeah. we're taking the same probabilistic yeah, yeah, notion yeah. yeah so but what you're talking about is nested simulations mm-hmm. the argument that elon musk used was not uh depth but breadth, what he said was, um, regardless of how many nestings deep we are, mm-hmm. his, his, uh, his argument was that the, the, the very fact that there would be many different simulations, that different companies or different game manufacturers, uh, different VR companies are producing, mm-hmm. that there will be many different simulations, but only one reality. So if you use that theory to mm-hmm. calculate the odds that we are in a simulation right now versus reality, the odds are much higher that we are in a simulation. 
Okay, I, I don't disagree with that, but I don't see regardless how... of how many nested levels deep that simulation right. is. But wouldn't wouldn't the, the the assumptions you have to make about before you can can come up with that um, yeah. probabilistic notion also entail that we're almost definitely in nested simulations? Um, like it, it seems it seems highly unlikely that yeah. there would only be two tiers, and yeah. and in in a simulated one yeah. we can create you know, like you know arbitrarily many. Um, yeah, yeah. simulations on our level yeah and then the level back there's like some hard wall that that to me seems a little bit fanciful if if we're moving forward with these assumptions yeah 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 so that does assume that there is such a thing as real mm -hmm. and that's like the highest level and there's nothing that is not a simulation there is no world in which that reality is a simulation so that it begins from that assumption mm -hmm. that there is such a thing as real and if you begin from that assumption and you admit that within that reality, it's possible to create many simulations. Mm -hmm. um, and there would just be one reality and many simulations. Uh, and you can voluntarily dip yourselves in and out of the simulations. Um, the fact that we find ourselves in some kind of reality uh, would strongly indicate that if you know the number of simulations is high, that we are in a simulation as opposed to reality. Now, the thing is, I find in that argument a couple of things that are kind of hard to point out but they are axiomatic problems mm -hmm. so the reason that i don't buy that argument although the conclusion i might buy for different reasons if i didn't wasn't willing to buy the conclusion then we wouldn't be having this podcast today mm -hmm. but the reason i don't like uh, i i don't buy that uh, the chain of arguments is the following um if if you do if you do admit that this world is highly likely a simulation, then the premise of the argument, which is that, oh, people are building simulations and there are so many simulations um, cropping up, that is something that is only happening inside this simulated world. Who is to bet that that happened in this hypothetical real world? that you're talking about because that would have to happen in that hypothetical real world Before. in order for us to be embedded in this world which is a simulation in that real world mm -hmm. so you are hypothesizing something about the nature of the real world um, based on the historical course of events in this simulation that we are in mm -hmm. and so where are you, I mean, what space of sets are you calculating the probabilities on? Mm -hmm. Correctly done, you would have to calculate the probabilities using the number of simulated worlds versus the one real world in that real space. And you can't use the numbers in this world. You can't say Microsoft and Facebook and Oculus are creating so many uh, simulations mm -hmm. and using the future of this simulated world to say, oh, therefore we should be in a simulation because, you know, well, you see what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah, I do. So yeah. I think... I, so you're inferring that the same thing happened in that world up there. Right. Well, and that's, for us to be in a simulation. So so the simulations aren't um, that that I think Elon Musk and Nick Bostrom are, are supposing that we might be as a species inclined to make yeah. are not uh whimsical but rather they're what they, what they call like ancestor simulations. Uh, okay. So, so their idea is as as um, a member of a species that you would like to perpetuate yourself, there's there's no reason not to try and simulate the 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 past set of historical events so that you can then you know project into the future what may occur. Yeah. So so these ancestors and ancestry simulations 
are, are really prediction tools, right? So it's like you, you tweak and you model after your own reality, virtualized versions of that so that you can have some sort of um, prediction about what the future may hold depending right. on different decisions. So, so that your brain can make, because if this simulation was completely wacky and had nothing to do with the real world, it wouldn't your be brain useful. Develop. Yeah. Okay. So, so with with that assumption, then yeah, it's like that's that's what they're I think they're using to infer that, like, whatever is occurring here, yeah, has some is also it, something that is quite possible to have happened in the right, real world. Some meaningful analog. Yeah, and which is you, a strong if you, assumption. If you think about it, the statement of whether or not a certain structure of reality has within it the capability of creating simulated worlds is a very um it's a very uh profound property of mm -hmm. their reality it's kind of the same thing as asking whether a system is turing complete or not mm -hmm. um, what does turing complete mean so turing complete means that okay so it's a, it's it's a statement about computing machines and a computing machine or a computing system is turing complete if you can program it if it is programmable to compute the answer to any computable question. So it's like a highly generalized. It's a generalized. So for example, if you have an adding machine, an adding machine is not Turing complete because it can't do all possible uh, calculations. Mm -hmm. But if you have a general purpose computer like we have today, it is Turing complete in the sense that you can program it to do whatever computation you like because it can do um, um, a, a set of a sufficient set of computations, combinations of which can be used to give rise to any computation mm -hmm. that you want. Um, okay, so let me give you an example. So you know the you know the game Minecraft. Mm -hmm. Okay, so within Minecraft there are these things called I don't really remember. There's some kind of volcanic rock, mm -hmm. which if you like um, strike a fire on one end and you line this volcanic rock up next to each other then the fire can travel along the volcanic rock and this is a method of signal propagation it like functions in, kind of like a logic gate right yeah yeah so there was this guy who like in creator mode or god mode in minecraft where you can like create whatever you want he used this volcanic rocks in this very complicated uh design to build this like mega structure that functions like a digital calculator <laughs> with a digital display so you in order to do computations you start this off somewhere and it strikes fires at the ends of volcanic rocks that travel along very complicated tra trajectories and you can do multiplication and addition and a huge like rock face ultimately shows you the result of that calculation. Um, so within, so that kind of shows that Minecraft is a Turing complete world mm -hmm. or, the, or that the structures or that the structures that you can make using these volcanic rocks in Minecraft is technically Turing complete because if you can build a digital calculator, you can build other kinds of stuff mm -hmm. that would, in a sense, be Turing complete. So using this, you can imagine creating more and more complicated structures inside Minecraft until this digital calculator is such a sophisticated computing machine that it can run its own simulations. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine creating a game that runs inside this computing machine inside Minecraft, which is inside a computer, which is in the, inside this world, which may be a simulation. Okay, <laughs> so the Turing completeness versus non-Turing completeness is, a, is, I think, a fundamental statement mm -hmm. of the nature of reality that we are in. But once again, I mean, just as I said that, I realized that the idea of Turing completeness emerged in this world, and the Turing completeness of, of a meta-world in which the simulation is embedded might be a richer version. Right. And 
inhabitants in that that world could like look down on this world and say, okay, these guys think that's what Turing completeness is. Ha. It's just like a, <laughs> a ten to the power minus six of what this world is capable of. Hmm. Um, so anyway, so we shouldn't talk too much more about that. But I find that the way so coming back to Elon Musk's statement, if that ancestor stuff uh, is taken out of the equation then i find that the probabilities are being calculated kind of wrongly you're using one set to derive a number and mm-hmm. uh, that you're using as a, a probability calculation or another set that you don't know anything about mm-hmm. um so um yeah okay but i guess that's that's kind of a reasonable thing to inherit let's say okay if, if you lived in a world in which it was possible to create simulations you would want this world to be kind of similar in that sense right. well uh, if if you want to if you want this like because I think I think the reason you want to make that assumption is that there is some pragmatic reason, not just yeah. some novelty associated with making simulated worlds, but 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 indeed some sort of yeah. um, benefit within your strata of simulation sure. for making lower level ones, yeah. right? Is it's it's a model. But here's something that we'll come back to later in this conversation. We frequently forget that when we talk about um, when we hypothesize about different properties of worlds that are not our own, we still use logic and motivation that have been bred in this world mm-hmm. so the idea of pragmatism pragmaticism that we mm-hmm. have come up with in, in is, is is something that is a pure product of this world mm-hmm. and there's no reason why what is supposedly pragmatic or practical in that other world would would have anything to do with this right so um um and so on for like what is the purpose of life or whatever but we'll come we'll come to that later okay so that's the first thing that i wanted to talk about Elon Musk and the idea of whether or not the world is a simulation. Then I need to tell you something a little bit more personal because the first thing that I heard about the world being a simulation or not in recent times was this Elon Musk thing. And then uh, two other incidents happened to me personally, which got me started thinking a little more seriously about the idea. And if those things hadn't happened, we wouldn't be having this podcast today. It would just be an intellectual exercise. And my response to that would be... So my my general response to this Elon Musk thing is just... I mean, if there's no way to tell, there's no reason to even waste any time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, Because what kind of evidence could you produce either way? Mm -hmm. Um, But there are two, two things that happened and that eventually led to like a snowballing effect of experiences that I that I slowly accumulated uh, kind of precipitating in this podcast so it became kind of more serious so the first thing that happened was I have a friend called Rustam and he's a longtime meditator and he's meditated for many many hours um, and he's a guy that I plan to have on this show to talk mostly about meditation um, and when he talks about meditation you can kind of see that um, he sometimes speaks from a place of like deep personal experiential knowledge mm-hmm. and he's often unwilling to um, to elaborate on it and I've noticed this tendency not just with Rustam but with another friend of mine whose name is Rez uh, they have had personal experiences that are very true to them I can I can see that they have they're undoubtedly believe uh, sometimes it feels like there's not even a question of belief they just know that what they had experience was true but even to a person like me who is hopefully you know i'm very interested in meditation 
but I'm also I hopefully open-minded and non-judgmental when I keep pressing them with these questions. Even to a person like me, they would not like unpack some s- statements that they make. So what what are these kinds of okay? Statements? So the statement that Rustam made once, sitting on this very uh, couch, he said, uh, "Reality is not what it seems to be." And he said it in different forms at different times in our. Sometimes we would like take walks at night at parks and we're just talking about meditation and he's much farther down this path of meditation than I am. So um, at different times he has said it in different ways. And one time he said it particularly in the context of science. He said scientists think that they're very rational and they have a certain way of trying to figure out what the world is about. And it's mostly a materialistic approach that things the ultimate origin of everything that we experience are materials. So our sensory stim- stimulus, our experience is ultimately given rise to by material causes. And, um, and but, but they can be, what, what Rustam was pointing out is that no matter how inscrutable these scientists are in their scientific methods, they still carry around very irrational ideas that, um, they don't really test. And one of these is the the axiom that this is the way to go about knowing what is true about the world is the materialistic idea. Um, So for example, we had a conversation about the notion of the self. And although neuroscientists have um, conducted multiple experiments that bring the whole idea of the self into question, and there's really in current science, there is no place really for there to be a self. Mm We still go around like scientists go around acting in ways that you know. I mean, it just they, they, they go around feeling like a self. They go around rarely questioning, or you know, bringing their subjective experience in reconciliation with the the the, the science experiments, and so they act in many ways as if like there's a self, and they don't really bother to think about it. Mm-hmm. So so Rustam was just saying that you know there's this. Uh, there's this uh, version or description of reality, not simply the scientific description, but also the description of reality that most common people walk around with. Like they have a certain notion of what reality is. And what he was saying is reality is not what it seems to be. So that's that's something that he said. Well, you had a thought. Well, so, so I, I, I feel like it would be helpful for me to understand. So I think there is a very easy to identify notion of truth that we all have, right? In, in that it's like, ah, there's something that's like, it's, it's true or it's not, yeah. right? And this is this is regardless of the extent to which you've been exposed to the scientific method, a, um, a tendency I feel like most people have yeah. is, is um, we jump to categorize things as true or not true. Yeah. Um, some, sometimes without any rigor, sometimes with a lot of rigor. But I, I think, so what would maybe help me is, is Let's let's say we subtract the notion of truth for a moment, mm. and and then, uh, kind of just look into what the scientific method is, because you, you you gave yeah. a very nice concise definition of that earlier. Oh yeah, I mean I don't know how accurate this is, mm-hmm. the definition of the scientific method, um, but I kind of talked about some principles mm-hmm. that. Um, so in the historical past, science has not always been the thing that we see it today. Uh, using the scientific method, we find out information about different 
parts of the world, like different aspects of the world. And that's mostly what, what the operation of science today is. The principles of science are kind of solidly in place, but using those principles, we are finding out different things. And that's how science is evolving. But there was a time in the historical past when the principles of science themselves were not worked out very well. And different people had different approaches. Of course, there was a theological approach where something had been written down in a book a long time back. And the only way to know what's true is what was written down by God, God himself through human um, media. Um, and there was no questioning it. There's like the Aristotelian way, which is kind of like midway. Um, Aristotle just kind of wrote down this dogmatic things about, oh, birds fly because they uh, have the uh, uh, flyingness to them <laughs> or whatever. I mean, things that yeah. you really, I mean, so, um, and then later on there was, I mean, this, I'm just going to botch everything up, but like roughly some people came along and said, you know, I don't think that's really uh, the way to get at truth. It doesn't like feel like the right way. And there are, here are all of these examples where the thing that you said or the way that, you you present things or the things that you say to be facts are not facts so maybe there's something wrong mm-hmm. like aristotle counted his wife's teeth wrong do you know about this <laughs> no. like so he wrote down that males have so many uh, teeth and women's have women have a different number of teeth but no they don't he just <laughs> never bothered to count his wife's teeth uh, there were other things that he did for example in his view of the world there was no place for a supernova but in the middle ages which is when Aristotelian philosophy was all the rage, Mm -hmm. I guess around the 1200s, whatever, the Dark Ages. They're called the Dark Ages because no one was bothering to do any new original scientific discovery. During that time, there was actually a supernova that was so bright that you could read by its light at night. In the whole Western world, there is not a single written account of the supernova because according to the Aristotelian view of the world, no such thing, there, there was supposed to be no such thing under the sun. So I don't know how they reconciled their first person experience with the Aristotelian view. Like, did everyone just agree that it's a figment of imagination or is the work of the devil? And if you write it down, you're kind of validating the devils. You're playing into the devil's hands. But in contemporary, in, in, in accounts from the same time, from Eastern, from the Eastern world, like ancient Chinese manuscripts, there's a lot of descriptions of this thing that happened. And Current day astronomers know that such an event took place and it's confirmed by the accounts in the, in the Chinese manuscripts, but not in the Aristotelian ones. So, so over time, humankind in many different places and times have, to, have had to kind of historically struggle with what should be the means of obtaining <coughs> the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that is unfortunately not a part of modern day scientific education is how did the principles of science come about Mm -hmm. we kind of take them as very rigid absolute notions there can be no questioning but which is kind of terribly ironic when you think about it yeah yeah (laughs) yeah. but you know that's that's kind of that's partly why my views on scientists have changed like we are not really all we are cracked up to be Mm -hmm. kind of dumb about things that we don't have much okay so what are what are the modern principles okay so some of the modern principles are uh, what I mentioned downstairs were empiricism, um, reproducibility, uh, and falsifiability. And reproducibility is kind of related to objectivity. Okay. So what is empiricism? Empiricism, it might sound pretty obvious to you now in this day and age, but it had to be kind of worked out. Empiricism is that 
you go out and do experiments. Mm -hmm. So you don't just sit on your armchair and philosophize, which for the longest time people used to do that. Mm -hmm. Aristotle definitely used to just sit and think about stuff and and now I have a new theory for how the world works or now I have truth because it just kind of dripped from the ceiling onto my head. Um, (laughs) So uh, empiricism was, dude, no, you actually kind of have to go out and do experiments. And this was a radical notion at at some point in our Mm -hmm. history. So that's empiricism. The other thing is reproducibility, meaning that you can't just make statements that are hard for other people to reproduce. Yeah. So, for example, if you say, I know God, I know truth because God speaks in my head. Then other people will say, well, I guess there's no way for me to reproduce that. So I'll just have to take your word for it. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a bunch of really radical people, I guess, had to say, no, things that you say have to be reproducible. So you can only make statements about science using methods that are reproducible, that can technically be done by any other person. And if your statements are about things that are not reproducible, we're at least not going to consider that science. Mm-hmm. You can say things like, oh, I feel like I'm in, I'm really in love with this person, but we're not going to regard that as science because that's not a reproducible. No one else is in love with this person because they're a bit of a douchebag. So, <laughs> but it doesn't invalidate the fact that you might be in love with him, just subjective. So that brings us to like objectivity. It's kind of connected. Um, that science has to be about objective facts. And by objective facts, it means that you can't be making scientific statements about things that are subjective. Um, which makes sense. I mean, I mean, maybe this is just the definition of the scientific body of work, that we will talk about things that are objective and reproducible. And falsifiable. Um, and yeah, and, and the other thing is falsifiable. Falsifiable means... If you make a scientific statement, it ought to be a statement such that it can be falsified by some potential evidence. If there can be no possible evidence that falsifies it, it's not a statement of science. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of this makes sense. Now, the thing that I was telling you downstairs is that these are just kind of the definitions that built the body of work that is science. Mm -hmm. And the dogma of this era is that these are the definitions of all knowledge. That somehow it encapsulates all possible knowledge. And if you have any kind of knowledge that does not, that is not reproducible, falsifiable or objective, it's not true at all. Mm -hmm. And sort of the ultimate uh, pinnacle of that kind of reasoning, I hear when people say things like, I don't think consciousness is real. It's not reproducible. It's not falsifiable. It's very subjective. Um, And like ideas like the things that we are discussing today, you know, from a traditional scientific point of view, I would normally say there's no reason to even talk about it. Well, okay, so here, because here's... it's not like a reproducible falsifiable law. Right. Well, so, so maybe maybe it would be more... Um, it, it would be a, a more holistic statement to say that, like, something like consciousness like that can't be studied scientifically, per se. Yeah. Which, 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 which is what you're saying, is that many people would then hear that and equate that with is not worth knowing and not worth thinking about ever it's again. It's not true. It's, it's, it's like you're just like dicking around with your time. You might do as well do something else. Right. If it is not scientific knowledge, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of funny that if I, if I had been talking about these topics even a year back, I would have sounded more like one of those militant, atheist, traditional scientist kind of mm-hmm. people who would have completely backed up that line of reasoning. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, my views have changed now, not because of intellectual arguments, but because mostly of experiences that I've had, which have enabled me to, to have new experiences from newer points of 
view. I guess, yeah, what I'm imagining is, is that like, there is, there is the, um, there are things you can study with the scientific method and that's like a subset of all things. Yeah. And, and, and the so, scientific method is actually, I mean, I mean, all credit, I mean, loads of credit to the people who came, who went through the struggle mm -hmm. for finding out, I wouldn't say the right way because I, I wouldn't close my mind to the possibility of the scientific method changing in the future. But for a certain subset of all knowledge, for example, the knowledge of how does a tree grow mm -hmm. or how does the bat echolocate or how do you build a rocket that goes to moon? The scientific method is a fucking effective method. Best. I mean, yeah. it, it, it just so systematically reveals principles and, and all kudos to people who found that out. The only thing that I'm saying is that it's good for that particular purpose. But what needs reminding is that there are whole swaths of the spectrum of experience and reality that do not lend themselves to this form of obtaining knowledge. And it's a her heretical idea in most scientific mm -hmm. circles to say that. Well, and I think maybe like there's there's almost like, um, you know, to say that something's like objective, reproducible, and falsifiable mm -hmm. is is to like entail mm -hmm. a certain degree of generalizability, yeah. um, and also to an extent, um, uh, a uh, uh, it must. Uh, have consensus with all the other things yeah, that yeah, are yeah. Um, follow the same principle. So yeah. that's that's I mean right like that's the the power yeah. of science is that if if you have demonstrated something to be to to have those yeah, properties, yeah. it is now at the it's now you can harness it as any person. Yeah, and yeah. and things yeah. that come afterwards using the same method build on it. So it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it has this like nice self-contained quality yeah. to it. So I was about to use that word self-contained. So even in that dam, there are cracks. So there's this thing called Gödel's incompleteness theorem, mm -hmm. which says that, I mean, even if you gave away some ground and said, okay, um, science is a description or a, a modus operandi of uh, obtaining information about a subset of all information, even within its own domain, science is not really self-contained because Gödel's incompleteness theorem basically states, and I might be butchering it a little bit, that any formal system of logic or of, uh, or of uh, knowing what is right or not, like a formal mathematical system of proving or disproving things is necessarily either incomplete or inconsistent. Mm -hmm. By incomplete, it, it's meant that not all propositions, valid propositions that can be parsed using um, your formal system, not all propositions can be uh, uh, can be declared to be true or false using the methods of the formal system. So that's what incompleteness means. And inconsistent means that um, you, you might conclude that pro proposition A is true, and you might conclude that proposition B is true using the same system, but proposition A negates proposition B. Right. So the statement of Gödel's incompleteness theorem is that no formal system is um, both uh, consistent and complete. Right. So science, even within its own domain, cannot create its own uh, kingdom where everything is consistent and complete. So it's very hard to separate or like demix or like unmix the non-scientific knowledge from the scientific knowledge 
and just say science at least takes care of its own garden. Yeah. It doesn't quite. Well, yeah. and so okay, so so I I've encountered a little bit of the good old incompleteness proof, and and the most mm-hmm. like trivial example of something like that that I can think of, or that is sometimes used to illustrate it, um, okay. but is far simpler than what was actually occurring when Godel, you know, made a proof of this was like is like in in natural English language this the statement that like this sentence is false yeah right like it's it's if you <laughs> if you follow that logic you're like okay well if it's false then it's you know uh, then it's actually a true statement and, yeah, and yeah, if yeah. it's a true statement then it's false and, and so it's like yeah, that yeah. would be I guess a um, an axiomatic system that that leads to contradiction just just by merit of it's yeah. like it's I don't want to say it's syntax but it's it's yeah, um, yeah. the language that yeah. it's encoded in yeah. Um, those kinds of things are kind of annoying to me because it's like obvious, like sure. to me that like, maybe we just shouldn't make nonsense statements. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one is an example of an explicitly nonsense statement. That's why it irritates you. But then there could be other cases where they're like edge cases where you go smoothly from very useful statements to kind of like nonsensical statements. Mm-hmm. And you don't really know where the where you went from, you know, provably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, useful statements to them implying other statements that are now nonsensical. Right. So if if a if a whole set of very useful true statements, if you keep um, going from them using consistent and true logic of the formal system, and you keep um, going from, from step by step to other statements, and finally we arrive at a nonsensical statement. Then by induction, or not by induction, but just by logical connection, that they some some all. of those true statements might actually be right. Yeah, because you, you you don't actually know when you yeah. cross the threshold yeah, from yeah, sensical yeah, to nonsensical. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so I was talking about how Rustam said something like this: like reality is not what it seems to be, and I kind of pressed him about it, and he wouldn't talk about it. I'm like, well, man, what's what's going on here? Why wouldn't he? I had a hunch that he wasn't just saying it. And the reason that he wasn't divulging is that he kind of felt like I had either not had the experiences or that it was a very um, personal experience that I wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, kind of funnily, several months later, I cornered him in the physics building on the same day that my roommate, George, uh, cleared his final defense. And I told him, hey, Rustam, I kind of know what you meant when you said that reality is not how it seems. But I'll kind of get to that later. So Rustam said that. And my other friend Rez, he said kind of something similar. He said, if I remember correctly, he said something about the nature of truth. And I mean, he, he was a physics PhD. So, I, so kind of he's kind of familiar with the traditional scientific method of obtaining truth. And he said something about how he has experienced things that are far, far truer than, you know, theoretical truths that we glean from the method of science. And I kind of pressed him about it. And I mean, it was these were experiences that he arrived at through meditation as well. And uh, so I asked him, what do you mean, like, that they are truer? And... Uh, he, once again, he didn't want to talk about it at all. Like, I explicitly asked him, like, dude, can you talk about it? And he said, no, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Uh, uh, some some other things that we've talked about in the past that I feel like would be helpful, or the, what we're saying is reminding me yeah. of this. Um, well, so I guess, I don't know, I would I would maybe posit that, like, you can't experience something that's not true, right? Like, like in the sense that, like, we, yeah. are, we, are, we are just collecting... Inform- I don't know what to call it. Let's call it information, maybe. Yeah, let's just call it data, information, data. whatever. Yeah, yeah, so so we're collecting this in, and and, and um, 
you know, agnostic to our awareness of it. This is just something yeah. you can't you can't have. It's like, just raw data. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't you can't dispute the fact that like that last yeah. second just happened the way it happened. It yeah. just did. You know, maybe you you recreate it inaccurately in your mind, etc. Um, but so, so, so to me, so there's something that you, you said about like the essence of understanding is like mm. to take raw data and distill it to like its most intrinsic components, like past which it's no longer the thing you're trying to describe. Yeah. And, and with more it's, it's extraneous. You have, yeah, we were talking about understanding and I kind of described understanding as the process of, um, extracting, uh, a more compact definition out of. Uh, a large data mm-hmm. and this is something that the human mind is pretty good at doing so pattern so detecting patterns mm-hmm. in seemingly large volumes of rich data and then you kind of boil it down to oh there are like two two um, relevant variables here mm-hmm. um, and then once you have that you not only do you, are you able to store all of that data in terms of a compact two variable uh, description in your mind but using that you can now predict future rich states without needing a rich long description length mm-hmm. so i mean there is this idea of description length in computer science i mm-hmm. guess which is what is uh, or the minimum description length like can you convert the description of this phenomenon into something that requires fewer words mm-hmm. and so the example that i gave was the motion of the double pendulum mm-hmm. uh, which maybe it's not the best definition best example because it's kind of chaotic but whatever i mean once you work out the dynamics you will see that the only things that matter are like a couple of parameters but like the lengths of the strings of the double pendulum and the masses that are attached and once you have that you can recreate uh, if you have um, infinite precision you can recreate the great rich dynamics Mm -hmm. of it and you don't have to remember everything about this trajectory you just need to know what the relevant parameters are but yeah, continue. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, so what that makes me think then is that, like, while um, we we are we are a bit hamstrung in that most of our ways of of communicating with each other are necessarily um, gross over oversimplifications of our raw input yeah. experience. Yeah. And so, so to me, when I hear someone who who maybe does um, practice meditation a lot or, or, or you know tends to cultivate a sense of awareness about their own experience, is that maybe maybe for them they've they've become intimate enough with their own experience to recognize certain or understand things that cannot be distilled yeah yeah. right so it's like it's it's not experience that's shared widely enough for there to be words to describe it Mm -hmm. yep no words or or even there there might even be that like it's it's sentence length would be inordinately long right to come to to convey faithfully yeah 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 or the other thing that I suspect might be true is that um, they might imagine that to, if they describe or communicate this experience, even if they do it successfully from their point of view, a person who hasn't had that experience will immediately jump to try and criticize it or intellectually no break map. it apart. Yeah. And uh, they're just not interested in this exercise. They don't see any motivation for uh, communicating uh, that experience. I mean, I don't think I would have done that, but I mean, whatever. I mean, they're, they are, they're completely free to decide whether or not they want to tell me. Uh, so, okay, so these are kind of, so these two things that Rustam and Rez said were not explicitly about simulation. But then what happened was I had uh, my friend Pratim on this uh, show 
And partly the reason I had him on this show was that our mutual friend Ian said that Pratim went to Peru to do this ayahuasca ceremony that I actually also want to do. And uh, it kind of intrigued me because he has like a similar background, grew up in India, is kind of like an atheist. Oh, well, wow, he went to like ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. Let's see what he found out, you know. So I had him on the podcast and he described to me what happened on the ceremony. And um, I'll just kind of give you a brief description of it. Um, he, he began with, so he had this like vision or an understanding or a realization as he looked around. Uh, of reality kind of breaking down into its constituent parts. So he kind of visualized or he saw that each atom, for example, let's start with atoms as the building blocks. Um, they're just kind of doing their own thing and there's no consciousness or free will or, or sentience, 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 sentience there. And it's they're just kind of doing their own thing. And then you go up one level and molecules are just doing their own thing as a result of the collective behavior of the atoms. And you keep going level after level after level. And kind of when he came up to the level of this uh, reality, he kind of realized that the, everything is like a clockwork. And it's just this mindless automaton. Mm -hmm. The universe can just be broken down into simple little mindless things that are just doing their thing. So he had the uh, notion. I mean, he's a computer scientist. So, I mean, mind you, like every person's drug experience is an interaction between who they are and the drugs, so not everyone is going to have the same experience. Um, so he, he kind of looked around and he saw reality as this very complicated but ultimately mechanistic simulation. Just, it sounds like he's, I mean, what he's describing seems to be sort of like the the textbook complexity theory interpretation of reality, mm. in, that, in that like as you, you, you will, you will Ultimately, everything is deterministic, but it is chaotic. So as you go up in levels, yeah. you get epiphenomena that, that wouldn't necessarily be um, linearly or easily predicted from the yeah, level below. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but ultimately, you can't discard the fact that yeah. as you get down to the more um, uh, essential or atomic level, yeah, yeah, yeah. that it's not, it's yeah. by and large deterministic. Yeah, yeah. So this is like the first part of what he experienced, which was just reality kind of deconstructing itself into like mechanistic phenomena and then he said he made contact with the one let's just call it the one mind or the one consciousness that has given birth or created this simulation um and when i was first hearing about this i was like <laughs> <laughs> that's very fun i wasn't like doubting his sanity i was just like wow that's a that's a fucking cool drug to take yeah <laughs> and I, I wasn't taking it all that seriously um but, I mean, it doesn't mean that I would therefore say if I took the drug, I would have a more profound, it's just a drug. It gives you whatever visions you get. There's no reason to put any real weight on it. But anyway, so he said that he made contact with the one mind or one consciousness that has given birth or created the simulation. And his first question to the mind was, why did you create this simulation? Why did you make this world? And his answer, it's also kind of like cutely, computer science based so it's just kind of funny um but we'll sort of come to this we, we don't need to come to this later but i guess in general i kind of want to say that um the nature of reality can be understood in many different languages depending on where you are coming from and it's not necessarily true that one is right and the other is wrong um it's always the, the, the narrative is always a bridge between where you are 
and the ultimate truth and where you are can be different. So the description that is revealed to you, I'm not saying by ayahuasca, by just even your own experiences, is always a bridge between where you are and where you need to be next. So his language, his description of what the one consciousness replied is kind of in terms of like computer sci-fi stuff. So he said that the one consciousness responded that that consciousness kind of came into being in this void and it didn't know where it was or what its purpose was or what kind of existence it has, but just the fact that it was. And Pratim told me that uh, imagine that we are running all these sophisticated neural networks on some Amazon server and one day one of them becomes sentient. How, how is that neural network going to feel? It has just come into this void, this black void. It doesn't know where it is. It obviously doesn't see the server. It knows nothing about the real world where humans are running it. Um, I'm, I'm not meaning to say that, okay, that kind of sentience can happen with today's neural network. That is a whole other <laughs> conversation to have. But just for the moment, imagine. So you were saying, imagine. So this, is, this consciousness that I just kind of came into being and there was just void and there was nothing else. So, and I was, I guess I shouldn't like, well, to paraphrase him, this is what I remember still. He's kind of like, oh, there was like nothing going on. I was just by myself. I was bored. There was nothing happening. So I just wanted to create a world. And so I have created this world and um, it's just kind of um, fun. There's all of this like interesting stuff happening. So that was just kind of the, the answer to the religious question of what is everything. Mm -hmm. And then his next religious question, I guess. I mean, these are all religious questions, all aren't religious they? Questions. Yeah? Yes. I mean, this, I mean, this is in the context of taking ayahuasca, but <laughs> I mean, these are questions that humans have asked generation after generation. What is this? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What should I do with my life? Mm -hmm. And so his next question was, what should I do with my life? What should I do in this simulation? And the one consciousness said, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so... In the days that followed, I felt like I mean the podcast was over and then I interviewed other people. I thought that that was kind of in the past. In the days that followed, every once in a while, because of life circumstances or experiences, his second question and second answer would pop up in my head. It's like, you know, it's kind of funny to think to myself that this like drug addled, whatever, this, this one consciousness told my friend, just do what you want. But that in many, many circumstances seemed like a much truer answer than anything else that society or human norms or whatever was telling me. Mm -hmm. It's not, if you think about it, it's, you say, just do what you want. And the, and the inclusion of the word just means that it's just kind of like a dismissive, but it's not what you want can be a very rich cocktail of your experiences and your, or your, um, or your moral compass or whatever. But it also kind of points to the fact that there is no absolute right answer mm -hmm. to what you ought to do in this world. Just do what you want. And um, so anyway, so that was the second question and answer kept popping up in my head initially. But then I guess I had some experiences that I kind of have started to forget now what particular experiences that they had that I had. But I remember distinctly that more and more frequently his first question and answer started popping up in my head, which is, you know, this world is a simulation created by a one consciousness for no purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I wasn't thinking about it too consciously, 
but somewhere in a in a slightly mid to low subconscious level this thing was kind of just unpacking itself and refining itself um and then i had um, um well the only kind of psychedelic strong psychedelic drug experience this experience that i've had since this interview was on my last trip to mexico i did lsd and although i don't remember the details of how i felt on the trip um i remember that already by then my a my perspective on the world had changed more towards this notion of oh this is some kind of game that i don't understand but i don't necessarily need to understand it it's like this simulation but also the experiences on that lsd trip i guess kind of um, it, it, it kind of galvanized this new notion a little bit more that this mm-hmm. could just be uh, like a not right. I mean, I keep using this word simulation, but as we go deeper into the conversation, I will kind of characterize what I mean mm-hmm. when I say the word simulation or game. Um, so, so a lot of the things that I will say in today's conversation, I cannot back up intellectually because I did not derive them intellectually. Mm-hmm. They're just uh, um, ideas and experiences and realizations that I had based purely on my personal experience and kind of feeling a certain way about it and some of them have been experiences on psychedelics so for example the very first time i did lsd which was way before i ever started thinking about the world being a simulation there was no one had ever told me and i wasn't thinking about it at all there's no reason i would be thinking about it i remember that we i did lsd with my ex-girlfriend kk and we were in this room and we did it at night it was a bad decision um, I wasn't like in the best place in my life. Plus, we were home um, in like this enclosed space at night, and the, you know, I mean, the trip wasn't overall very good. It was kind of negative. But the next morning, she had a plane to catch, and I had dropped her off at the airport, and I was driving back in the car. And I remember I was kind of stuck in very slow-moving traffic uh, on I-35 as it goes through like downtown Austin, and I still remember. Uh, a certain uh, feeling that I had at that time and I felt like all of this thing as I look outside my car all these people like so serious in their car they have like an objective they are like driving somewhere and now they're stuck in this traffic and it's a problem and the city needs to do something about it blah 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 this whole fucking thing felt like a game mm-hmm. um, and when I say that I meant that I felt like all of its ultimate objectives and all of its ultimate rewards, whether it be money or career or whatever it is that these people are pursuing, is just all like fake moon currency within a game. And while that changes nothing about reality, it changes it changed how I related to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it wasn't like a dismissive thing. It was almost like um, it, it kind of shifted me to this point of view where it was like a bird's eye I was like oh, okay I mean I can still play this game mm-hmm. but I just have to remember that the score in the corner of the screen is just like a game score mm-hmm. you know I mean it doesn't really mean anything so it's kind of up to me and I have over the years I've kind of bought into the socially shared notion that this is an absolute thing to chase whatever it may be for different people it's different things for some people it's fame for some people it's money but we kind of forget that we have come up with this Mm-hmm. We have constructed it. So that was like my first, more easily understandable notion of what I mean when I say that life is a game. But it ultimately is a subset 
of what I will eventually unpack as being this bigger idea that life could be a game in a more radical sense, but it kind of incorporates this notion of motivation as well, like what is the currency uh, of the game. So so it seems to yeah. me like there are there are like well I guess I guess what my brain keeps wanting to do is mm-hmm. is create two separate conceptions of reality. There's there's one that we have that tends to um, try to make reality conform to this game architecture. You mentioned like money, wealth, mm-hmm. or, or fame, or or things like this. Those things to me. Um, are are inextricably interpersonal. In other words, yeah. they only exist in the presence of other people. Yeah, you were talking about this yesterday. You know, yeah. yeah. So and that and that that kind of stuff always makes me think. You know, we are highly social creatures, and if you look at our like you know slightly more primitive like ancestors, yeah. there is there is a a um just like a strong um I don't want to say drive in like the normal sense, but like there's there's a motor inside us that mm-hmm. is that is designed to intuit social hierarchy yeah. and navigate it. Right, like I think. A, I would say a non-trivial amount of our intelligence yeah. was was designed to facilitate that. Yeah, and so but simultaneously, the... as we are navigating this hierarchy, we're also creating it. Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. like we thought we thought we needed to deal with it, and so we projected onto everything we see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's it is it's absolutely sort of this this yeah. vicious feedback. Yeah. But so there's there's that there's that layer of reality which you know for for you know all, all of us we we I think we have that inborn tendency to 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 desire to navigate that well and and so it, they yeah. things are shiny right yeah, like yeah. like under that lens um but yeah. then but then there's what you're describing with like the birds eye view which is like even while we're playing this game yeah. we're also existing in something yeah, yeah you know you know larger <laughs> larger than than our 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 needs in our yeah. imagined societies uh, yeah. of other people like you know just strip away all the other people on earth it's just you yeah. you're still on some yeah, 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 yeah. sphere in some yeah, place yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that yeah. has its own yeah yeah so that's that's really good okay so it's good that you kind of decouple the two layers um maybe there's like a continuum of these layers mm-hmm. of gaminess or maybe they're like discrete layers but it's it's kind of useful that um, the first layer that you spoke of was like human intersubjectively created uh, games, and it's much—it's kind of easier to see through. All they would be surprised that there are some people who like just so buy into it so much that I mean, there's no even starting a conversation with them about, hey, do do you realize how money is a fiction? Mm-hmm. You know, you only want money because other people want money, <laughs> <laughs> and so everyone kind of comes together, and just as like people in a church hold hands together and say, we have faith. And therefore, we believe everyone comes together and say, we all want money, therefore, you shall want money. And because I want money, you want money. You know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so um, in that way, like humans, I mean, I think Yuval Harari has talked about it in his book, is that we have a phenomenal power of creating reality out of fiction because everyone believes that fiction. So there's that level of gaminess, and that's more easily communicated to people. Even if they don't subscribe to it, they might sit here and listen. Yeah, you're right, but I'm still going to go out and get my money. You know, <laughs> So it's, it's more easily communicable. But the other layer that you're talking about, which is if you strip away the human social game part, I hope you enjoy the rest of the universe. In the room of life, there's still kind of like in the a, second episode, so we discuss the rest of the, the conversation is geared towards of creating this. increasingly okay. believable toy worlds connected to the cycles of creation and destruction in Hinduism, and frame some theological questions in light of the simulation theory. 
I question how much science truly tells us about the nature of our reality, and we discuss the distinctions between consciousness and the brain, and between the world and the self.